Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. We hope that all of our deadly friends have enjoyed a wonderful Valentine's Day. We have a great Valentine's lineup for you. For our readers on the run, we have my short crime story titled The 14th of Forever. What happens when forever isn't all it's cracked up to be? After our story, we're set to bring you a terrific interview with romance author Miriam Cobras, who joins us all the way from Hamburg, Germany. Before we get to that, though, we cannot overlook the horrific events of the past week. On behalf of myself, my husband Alec Carrick, and our family, we send our prayers to the families of the 17 victims of the Valentine's Day shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The coverage of this horrible crime has once more brought us to our knees in grief, knowing as we do that life is both precious and vulnerable, that our loved ones move in a world where art and literature and joy are fused with evil, are inseparable from acts of terrible violence. My personal prayer each time one of these crimes is perpetrated is that this time, this time at last, we will evolve. This time at last we will grow as a civilization, as a society that cannot and must not tolerate the murder of our most precious members, our beloved young. I say the coverage brings us to our knees, and by that I am referring to the sense of almost hopelessness that I hear coming from the Western world. But we are not hopeless. I want to yell, to scream, to whisper into the abyss. We are not helpless or hopeless or without the power we need for change. And so my pen meets paper, and one word is scrawled upon the page over and over until the ink runs together in a howling command, Now, now, now. And this, then, becomes my prayer in the forum of my life, the word, the written word, and I reach out to you, my dear friends, in the heart of this prayer, and I plead with you to repeat it with me. Now, now, now. If not now, when? If not us, whom? I hate that this podcast, which is designed to be fun and lighthearted and educational and purposeful, is forced to turn its voice against the evil that has stepped once more out of its cave. But this is the world we live in, and I, as a writer, cannot and will not ignore. And so, on this Valentine's Day season, I wish you love, I wish you warmth and chocolate and flowers and hearts and one beloved other with whom to share your precious moments of joy. But more than anything else, I wish you safety and peace. And change, change, change. Now, now, now. My love to all our listeners, readers and writers alike, I hope you will enjoy my story, The 14th of Forever. Let it rot. The 14th of Forever by Donna Carrick. I'm just saying, as pagan fertility festivals go, this one really sucks. You wouldn't feel that way if you were dating. Maybe not, Mallory said, 
but on behalf of all the single guys and gals, I think we could do without the fat cherub and his nasty red arrows. Anyway, what are you and Celia doing tonight? It was only half a beat. No one else would have noticed, but Mallory knew him. She sensed a stiffening of Jeremy's shoulders when he answered. Lucky me, he said. I get to save my money this year. Celia's out of town, staying with her mom in Cornwall. And the kids? They went with her, Jeremy said. We figured at their ages it wouldn't hurt them to miss a week of school. Jeremy crept onto the shoulder, planting the cherry on the Crown Vic's roof. Daytime traffic was a bitch on the 401, especially given the winter conditions, and cops were an easy target for rush-hour motorists. He took his sweet time exiting the vehicle. The scene had been cordoned off with pylons, funneling westbound traffic to the left. The victim had politely fallen onto the far-right westbound collector's lane. That meant they didn't have to shut down all four lanes— but the right one and the on-ramp were a bust. The drop from the Don Mills overpass wasn't overly dramatic. She'd initially bounced off the roof of a 2008 Grand Caravan. She might have even survived, except for her frailty, and the Ford Escape that caught her on the rebound. A uniform waved as they approached. I'm Detective Mallory Tosh, and this is my partner, Detective Jeremy Christie. The constable flashed a crooked grin. Tim Beckwith. Nice to meet you, detective. He nodded at Jeremy. What's happening, Chris? Chris was Jeremy's nickname, a handle he detested. He smiled at the constable. Same old, Tim. How's our victim? Still quite dead. Jeremy chuckled and Mallory rolled her eyes at the constable's bit of gallows humor. It might have looked like a simple traffic accident, but in Toronto, all sudden deaths are first handed off to homicide. Only when foul play is ruled out and the death signed off by the city coroner, as fully explained, can the case be closed. Bad time of day for it, Mallory said, nodding at the bottleneck that had already formed under the Don Mills Bridge. Shit, Mal, Jeremy said. Is there ever a good time of day to end up like that? The forensic photographer was hard at it, recording the bundle of fabric and blood from every available angle. Crime lab techies in bunny suits, shot in white paper booties, combed two and a half lanes for any evidence of wrongdoing. Jumper, Mallory said. Looks like, Jeremy nodded. I told you, my friend, people really don't like Valentine's Day. Sherman Grady was not your Joe Average accountant. Despite his well-known dexterity with numbers, he harbored a romantic soul. He replaced the receiver, having confirmed the flowers would be delivered to his wife by noon. The accompanying note would read, Yours till the 14th of forever. Next he made sure their reservation was secured for 6.30 at the David Duncan House. He'd booked it months in advance, knowing how difficult it was to nab a table anyplace decent on Valentine's Day. His mind was not operating at its usual capacity lately, so he felt better having nailed down the plans. He thought back to his wedding, thirty years ago today. She'd been a stunning bride, a rare blend of beauty and modesty, confidence and poise, 
long blonde hair that fell in natural honey-colored waves over ivory shoulders. Sherman had been a handsome enough young man in his own right, arrow-straight bearing and a quick smile. He knew how lucky he'd been, how his charm had come to his aid in winning her undying love. They'd sworn it then, and his promise was as meaningful today as it had been on Valentine's Day thirty years ago. Yours till the fourteenth of forever. Sherman wasn't given to displays of emotion, at least not outwardly. He liked to think he carried himself with professional grace. Certainly it stood him well in the current corporate climate. With colleagues running around in a constant state of suppressed panic, everyone watching the heads roll and doing the math. Life, he thought, is a game of chicken. When you see that proverbial light at the end of every tunnel, you've got to stare it down and pray it's not an oncoming freight train. He was good at that, good at maintaining an aura of quiet calm in the face of chaos. It was this quality that had helped him stay employed these past thirty years and still kept him in professional demand. When he'd asked for her hand, he'd told her he would provide, that he would keep a steady job, and he had, despite the corporate shenanigans and shake-ups. He'd done it by coupling an analytical mind, exceptional business skills, a computer-like genius for math, with a warm smile and undeniable charm. Despite his normally cool demeanor, he couldn't help but raise an eyebrow when his phone rang and the call display showed the extension for human resources. "'Hi, Judy,' he said. "'What can I do for you?' It might have been anything. Five of his co-workers had been packaged off the previous week. As the company's only accountant, he'd felt relatively safe, especially since he reported directly to the CEO— but one never really knew. Sherm, she said, an edge of nervousness in her voice, can you come to my office? Of course, Judy. What's up? Just come here, Sherman. Right away, please. Stay calm, he told himself. He made his way down the hall, past the empty boardroom. It reminded him of the old joke, how do you create a successful small business? Well, first you start with a big business, Ha ha. The elegant boardroom used to be nearly impossible to book, being used for daily back-to-back meetings by every department. These days, though, it seemed the only meetings held with any regularity were the ones in Judy's office, the ones where the final handshake took place. Sherman peeked into Thomas's office on his way down the hall. Still on for lunch, Tom asked. Still on, Sherman agreed. Can't chat, though. I'm off to a meeting with Judy. Oh, cripes, Tom said. Well, good luck. Then, as an afterthought, he added, Been nice knowing you. Sherman chuckled, more to calm his own nerves than because the joke was funny. The door to Judy's office was closed. He knocked before opening it. Come in, Sherm, she said. Have a seat. He looked around the room at the unfamiliar faces. Instead of sitting, he asked, Judy, what's happening? He wasn't jittery exactly. His professionalism wouldn't allow for that, but he was noticeably anxious. Judy came around the desk. Sherm, she said, taking his elbow and guiding him to a seat at the round table before settling down beside him. 
These are Detectives Mallory Tosh and Jeremy Christie of the Toronto Metro Police Services. Please, detectives, sit down. She waved at the empty chairs. Mallory threw a look at her partner. Out of respect, it was usual to stand to deliver unfortunate news, but the silly HR person had positioned it so they didn't have much choice. Mallory nodded, and she and Jeremy sat across from Sherman Grady. Mr. Grady, Mal began, we hear about... Oh, my God, Sherman sputtered. Is it Valerie? Has something happened to Valerie? Sherman was, after all, good at math. He and Valerie had no children, no other close family members or dependents. Valerie had not been herself this past year. She'd been showing signs of early-onset dementia. Since her 55th birthday last year, she'd taken medical leave from her job at the bank, citing stress as the underlying condition. And it was stressful for her to find herself losing her ability to handle numbers quickly and efficiently, and subsequently coming under the scrutiny of the bank's management. He'd taken her to the family doctor, but lately she'd begun leaving the house after he did in the morning. If he couldn't reach her on the home phone, he'd usually get her on her cell, but sometimes she'd forget to put it into her pocket. Just last week, on Wednesday, she'd called him from the supermarket. She couldn't remember why she'd gone there and was panicking. He'd had to take a time out from his spreadsheets to pick her up and drive her home. The doctor had her lined up for testing at the memory facility in North York, but that was still a month away. Jeremy flashed a look at Mallory. She understood and let him take the lead. Why do you say that, Mr. Grady? he asked. It might seem unkind, but they couldn't let it pass. After all, every sudden death was considered questionable until they had ruled out the possibility of foul play. Grady had immediately assumed something had happened to his wife. The detectives didn't know him. They weren't aware of his lack of other family, his wife's medical history, or his proficiency at math. For all they knew, he might have a much darker reason for suspecting something had happened to Valerie. She, she hasn't been herself lately. She's been easily confused. Sherman fought to regain his composure. Sherm, Judy said, taking his hand, I'm so sorry. Mallory shot a look at the HR manager that said, Stand down, lady. I'll let you three talk privately, Judy said. I'll be in the break room, if you need me, Sherman. When the door had closed behind Judy, Mallory spoke. In what way has your wife been confused? I can't really explain it, Sherman said. She used to be so sharp. Lately, she doesn't always know what day it is. I had to remind her yesterday that today is our anniversary. We were married on Valentine's Day, and we always celebrate with a nice dinner. She used to get excited, but now she doesn't remember. When did you last see your wife? Jeremy asked. This morning, when I left for work, around seven o'clock. Please, tell me what's happened. Mallory studied Grady's face, taking in the guarded but growing panic. We're sorry to tell you, Mr. Grady, she said, but your wife has been involved in an accident. What? Sherman said, rising to his feet. What happened? Is she all right? I have to get to her. Where is she? Please sit down, Mr. Grady, Jeremy said. Mrs. Grady, at least we believe it's Mrs. Grady, 
died this morning in a traffic accident. It happened around 7.15. But you're not sure it's Valerie, Sherman said, his voice registering hope. We're fairly certain it's her, Mr. Grady, Mallory said. Sherman thought once again of his wedding day, 30 years earlier. Although he struggled for composure, he wasn't able to stem the tears that threatened to spill from his eyes. I'll have to identify her, he said. You'd better take me to her. Mr. Grady, Jeremy said, his voice kind but firm. It was a very bad accident. We'll be using her dental records to identify her. She's with the coroner's office now. I'm afraid you won't be able to see her till they release her to the funeral home. What do I do? Detectives Tosh and Christie had attended their share of grieving loved ones. They had broken the bad news more times than they could count. It always came down to the same question. What do I do now? What do I do this morning, this afternoon, this evening? Tomorrow? It was the human fallback position to take action to fight the inevitable. They always needed to be doing something. It didn't matter that nothing they might do, no conceivable action on their part would change the facts. Their loved one was gone. Death is final. Just the same, for the living, it was important to be doing something. We'll need you to come down to the division with us, Mallory said. You'll need to sign the requisition for the dental records. You'll need to identify her belongings, her coat, purse, clothing. She was carrying her purse? Yes, sir, Jeremy said. I'll tell Judy I'm leaving now, Sherman said. She'll let my boss know. There's no need, Mr. Grady, Mallory said. Miss Hanover knows you'll be leaving with us to identify the belongings. Sherman stared at the coffee maker in the visitor's lounge at 33 Division. He'd often seen the police cruisers driving on Don Mills or York Mills on their way to their base on Upjohn, but he'd never been inside the building. The two detectives had left him sitting there for what seemed like hours, but was probably closer to 20 minutes. Although he hadn't taken his eyes off that coffee pot for more than the quarter second it took to blink, he could not have described it, nor, if pressed, could he even have told you it was, in fact, a coffee pot. It simply didn't register. It was there in his sight line, but the image didn't penetrate via the optic nerve to travel to his brain. It was just there. And he was there. This was really happening. Twenty minutes. Thirty. It hardly mattered. Time had no essence. It was merely something to be tolerated, passed through, withstood. Of course, that could be said for many things in life. They needed to be withstood. Sherman could not have described his thoughts as he sat there staring at the coffee pot, back arrow straight, hands on his knees, a proper schoolboy waiting for instructions from his teacher. His mind had somehow detached itself from his body. He had the eerie sense he was watching himself, that the real Sherman was hovering somewhere near the ceiling lights, poised to fly away without notice, abandoning him in that strangely sterile room. "'Would you like a cup of coffee, Mr. Grady?' It took a second before he realized she was speaking to him. Huh? he said. 
He turned to see Detective Mallory Tosh enter the room, followed by her partner, Jeremy Christie. The detectives were carrying what appeared to be evidence bags. Sherman's stomach churned as he recognized Valerie's winter coat. It had cost a small fortune, a birthday gift when she'd turned 55 late last year. But it was lovely, a stylish cashmere with snug lining, perfect for Canadian winters, and a beautifully tapered cut that flared at the hips, enhancing her still regal figure. Valerie had clapped her hands when she opened the box, and they were both astonished at how well he'd guessed her size and fit. That had been months ago, back when his wife still clung to a semblance of mental normalcy. "'I wondered if you'd like a cup of coffee,' Mallory repeated. "'You were looking at the coffee pot.' "'Oh,' he said. "'No, I didn't realize I was doing that. "'But yes, I guess I would appreciate a cup. "'That's very kind of you.' Mallory looked at Jeremy, who raised a brow in acknowledgement. Neither would say it out loud, but they'd discussed it many times before, how the grief-stricken, the loved ones, always seemed to follow a script— their behavior might vary wildly from case to case, depending on their own unique personalities and experiences, but they each held on to a basket of words they could dip into during times of crisis. Kind was one such word. The deeper the grief, the more profound the shock, the more firmly the family member would cling to the notion of kindness in others. Not at all, Mallory said. Let me get that for you. She passed the bag she was carrying to her partner. We have to ask you, Jeremy said, whether you recognize these items. Take your time. We need to leave them in the bags, but I'll put them here on the table. Please just look at each one. Let me know if you need me to turn the bags over. Yes, Sherman let the affirmation rest on the ensuing silence. The detectives allowed the gap to build, hoping for a follow-up comment from Grady. When he did not elaborate, Jeremy said, do you recognize any of these items? Mallory placed a ceramic mug in front of Sherman. He lifted it to his mouth before answering. Yes, he repeated. That's Valerie's coat. I'm sure of it. I bought it for her last fall. And that's her favorite purse, the cream color, to match the coat. Was she carrying her ID? That's right, Mr. Grady, Mallory said gently. That's how we knew to contact you. She had her ID in her purse along with your office and cell phone numbers as an emergency contact. Grady's perfect posture seemed to disintegrate before their eyes. He slumped in his chair, wrapping both hands around the hot mug for comfort. Oh my God, it's really her. It's really Valerie, isn't it? Yes, Jeremy said, we're afraid so. Do you know why she might have been walking along Don Mills this morning, Mallory asked. She's had a few of these episodes lately. Her dementia seems to be increasing. Last week she left the house and went to the supermarket, but came to her senses and called me on her cell. I picked her up and took her back home. But why Don Mills? Was it normal for her to walk there? No, I don't think she's ever done that before, but I work near there. It's possible she was trying to get to my office. That would make sense, Jeremy said. The accident happened at 7.17 this morning. That's a very short time after you left her at 7. Would she have been able to dress herself and walk to the Don Mills overpass in that short of a time? 
Is that where it happened? Sherman asked. Did she fall from the bridge at the 401? Mr. Grady, Mallory said, forcing him to meet her eyes. She would not have fallen. There's no way anyone could fall from that overpass. The safety railing is too high. Sherman digested the fact, struggling to avoid the obvious conclusion. Are you saying she... Are you saying... Did my wife jump off the bridge? We can't say anything with certainty at this point, Jeremy said. We're just trying to nail down the timeline. Do you think Mrs. Grady, Valerie, do you think she would have walked to the overpass in the short time since you left her? She was already dressed when I left, Sherman said. Until last summer, she still worked at the bank, the one at Don Mills and York Mills. She was a creature of routine, habit, if you like. Even though she was no longer able to work due to her dementia, she still liked to get up with me in the morning, dress, and have breakfast. You say she worked at the Don Mills and York Mills Bank, Mallory said. Is it possible, Mr. Grady, that she thought she was walking to work? Sherman paused. Yes, that's certainly possible. We live, lived, I mean. Our place is a condo in one of the high-rises at Shepherd. I usually take the car, and since she's been ill, I keep her keys with me. I used to drop her off at work every morning and pick her up at night, but it wouldn't be difficult for her to walk there. Was your wife well physically? Jeremy asked. She looked frail to us, but of course, under the circumstances, it's hard to tell. Valerie has always been fit, proud of her figure. The past few months, though, I think she sometimes forgets to eat. She has lost some weight. You could say she's been frailer than usual. Has your wife been diagnosed, Mallory asked? Not yet. The family doctor prescribed a cognition-enhancing drug and set up an appointment at the North York Memory Clinic. They had planned to assess her to see if the problem is, was, Alzheimer's. The appointment was scheduled for April. Meanwhile, you were coping with the problem? Yes, we were coping. A young woman with a ponytail and a short tweed skirt came into the lounge area. Detectives, she said, can I speak with you for a moment? Tosh and Christy followed the woman, leaving Sherman to once again study the coffee pot at 33 Division. Sometime later, the detectives returned. Christy carried a box of pastries, which he set on the table near Sherman. Mr. Grady, he said, have a donut. No, thank you. Mr. Grady, Mallory said, it's going to be a long day for you. Please, we insist you need to eat something. If not a donut, then we'll have someone bring you a sandwich if you like. Grady let out a sigh. The donut will be okay, he said, but he didn't reach for the box. Mallory opened the lid. What kind? Finally, Sherman chose an old-fashioned, chewing slowly and without tasting. Did your wife have any friends, Jeremy asked. Was there anyone she remained in contact with socially, maybe someone she'd worked with at the bank? What do you mean? Why do you ask? We have a few friends, like everyone, people we get together with occasionally for dinner and drinks. That's it? We've been trying to get a handle on her state of mind, whether she was depressed, whether she'd been considering harming herself. Grady sat up straight in his chair. My wife, he said, 
was a very sick woman. She wasn't well enough to engage in any kind of a social life. We maintained a few friendships together, but she didn't have the strength to see people without me. What about before, Mallory asked? I mean, before she got sick, while she was still working. Was there anyone she was close to then? Anyone she might still want to see? You think she was trying to see a friend, not coming to my office, but to her old workplace? I suppose that's possible. There was a lady, I, I can't remember. I think her name was Sheila. They used to have lunch together regularly. Jeremy nodded at Mallory. Yes, he said. That would be Sheila Matheson. We have someone speaking with her now. The change in the room was barely perceptible. Mallory, though, picked up on it immediately. She'd been raised in a family where being sensitive to mood changes was a valuable survival skill. Jeremy sensed it, too, but would have been hard-pressed to describe what exactly was different. Sherman didn't bat an eye. He made no move, no comment. And yet the very air that surrounded him had become somehow charged, electrified, with a current of anxiety. It lasted for less than a second. Sherman recovered, took a sip of his coffee and said, Yes, that's right, Sheila Matheson, that was her name. The reason we asked, Jeremy said, about Mrs. Grady's friends is because, he paused. Mallory picked up the sentence where he left off. A couple of passing motorists, she said, reported seeing someone on the bridge with your wife. Of course they weren't sure, Jeremy said. They were headed east on the 401 at highway speed. Still, a handful have called in and said they saw a woman in a white coat, followed by a man dressed in either brown or black. They said it almost looked like they were together, even though he was a little behind her. A man, Sherman said. They must be mistaken. Why would Valerie be out walking with a man at that hour of the morning, especially as sick as she was? It must have been a stranger, someone who happened to be walking there at the same time. That's possible, Mallory said. The only thing that seems odd is why a man would just keep going. Why wouldn't he stop and call 911 on his cell phone or flag down a passing driver to get help? If I was walking behind a lady and saw her climb over that railing, I'd try to stop her, Jeremy said. If I couldn't stop her, then for sure I'd try to get help. Do you think someone pushed her over the railing, Sherman said? That's just crazy. Why would anyone want to hurt Valerie? I'm sure it won't amount to anything, Mallory said. It's just something we have to follow up. Besides, she added, your wife might have waited for the man to pass before. M maybe he didn't know what she was about to do. But as far as you know, Jeremy said, your wife wasn't seeing any friends socially, I mean without you present. No, Sherman said, she really wasn't well enough for that. Very good, Mallory said. Our people will ask around at the bank, but it looks like this was an accident resulting from early-onset dementia. Are you well enough to drive, Mr. Grady? Jeremy asked. We can take you to your car, or if you like, we can have someone chauffeur you home and we can deliver your car to you. It's a short drive from my office, Sherman said. Please take me to my car. I'll be okay. Is there anyone who can stay with you, Mallory asked. No, but I'm really tired. I'll get some rest. There will be arrangements to make. When will my wife be released to the funeral home? 
The autopsy should be completed by Wednesday. Unless we tell you differently, you'll be able to make arrangements any time after that. Sherman nodded and drank the rest of his coffee. What am I going to do, he asked, staring into the mug. Home at last, Sherman poured himself a drink. He wasn't much of an imbiber, but the past five hours had left him knackered. He still had the feeling his soul was floating somewhere outside his body, like he was disconnected from himself. He fondled his wedding picture in its ornate frame and remembered once more how beautiful she had been, how much they had loved each other. The sense of loss was nearly overwhelming. Robert McQuaid and Sheila Matheson sat together nervously in the visitor's lounge at 33 Division. They didn't speak. They didn't have to. They'd discussed the problem many times before. Each knew almost by heart the story they intended to tell. Sherman nursed his drink. He hadn't slept the night before, and he felt himself drifting into that sweet release, but forced himself to remain awake at least a little longer. Time was neither linear nor circular in his experience. Instead, it was a game of hopscotch. Once you'd lived through a moment, you could relive it easily and at will. Sometimes, though, time got the better of you. Sometimes it dragged you back and forth, hopping like a madman over the chalky pavement, reliving moments, days, weeks you would rather relegate to the past. Recalling sights, smells, feelings you longed to forget. Anything could act as a trigger for the game. A particularly poignant piece of music. The way a dress clung to a woman's hips. Anything. Elizabeth, he said, for the hundredth time, cradling their wedding picture against his chest, the one with the heart-shaped wreath of red roses as a backdrop. Why did you have to die? Everything had gone to shit the day they'd discovered she had stage four ovarian cancer. All of their sweet plans, their gilded dreams, blasted into the stratosphere in that horrible moment of clarity. The children they would never have, the travel they would never enjoy, the old age comfort they would never share. How deep their love had been, even in that awful moment. If he could have captured it, preserved it under glass, confined it to a spreadsheet. But it was nothing more than memory now. Nothing more than a bittersweet mental album filled with images of a life that wasn't meant to be. And oh, the grief, the grief that never seemed to end. In his darkest hour, he had turned in desperation to her sister, Valerie, who shared her figure, her honey-blonde hair, her voice and physical beauty. And Valerie, haunted by her own sorrow at her sister's death, had turned to him. They'd married, as he and Elizabeth had, on Valentine's Day, a tribute to his sense of romance and his commitment to finding happiness beyond grief. It seemed at the time the best solution for both of them, to pick up the lost threads of love and use them to forge a new love, a new life. After all, they'd known each other for years. It seemed to make sense. After mere months, Sherman realized his mistake. Valerie may have looked like Elizabeth, but that was where the resemblance ended. 
Where Elizabeth was modest, elegant, and poised, Valerie was demanding, impossible to please, and at times almost a hateful shrew. She belittled him, mocked his source of livelihood, his love of numbers, his lack of interest in earning more money. Her job at the bank paid slightly more than his, and she never let him forget it. The final insult, though, had come early last year, when he'd discovered she'd been having an affair. Out of respect for his own beloved Elizabeth, and knowing he was doomed to never find a love like that again, he'd remained wedded to her sister those past twenty years. He'd used every ounce of his outward calm, his charm and wit to hold that marriage together, despite her insults, her sudden bursts of rage, her appetite for material things. But an affair? That was simply too much. Sherman valued fidelity and trust above all things. That was what made him such an exceptional accountant. He found out the truth quite by accident, that Valerie had been stepping out with a co-worker by the name of Robert McQuaid. He was at a local restaurant for lunch with his colleague, Thomas Braithwaite. Unknown to either of them, Valerie was also there with her friend, Sheila Matheson, from the bank. They didn't see each other, but Sherman caught the unmistakable shrill of Valerie's mean laughter and immediately paid attention. The women spoke softly, but he was able to hear. Thomas didn't think it strange. He never did say much over lunch. The men habitually ate in silence. He rang my bell, baby, Valerie said. Is it serious, Sheila asked. I think it might be. But in any case, it's clear I've got to leave the accountant. When will you tell him? Where will you go? I'll figure it out, Valerie said. Life's too short for this pretense. I deserve to be happy for real. And she was right, after all. Everyone deserved to be happy, didn't they? Too late for Sherman, though. Too late for Elizabeth. Until that moment in the restaurant, he had never really hated another human being. Unable to finish his lunch, he told Thomas he had a stomach bug and hightailed it back to the office. That night, he sat up planning, crunching the numbers, working it out in his mind. First, make sure the insurance was up to date. Then, investigate easy-to-access drugs that can cause cognitive disorders. Study the dosage required, administer, and begin the long-term care process. Finally, when everyone could see what a caring husband he really was, end this farce, once and for all. That morning, he and Valerie rose together as usual. She was no longer capable of making breakfast, so he did it, taking care to leave out the usual dose of pharmaceuticals. It wouldn't do to have any trace of unprescribed pills in her digestive tract. He helped her dress and convinced her to drive with him to work saying the bank had called and they needed her help. He promised to drop her off there. She was so confused. After parking at his office, he knew no one would be around at that hour. He swiped in. Instead of entering the building, though, he went back to the car for Valerie. Come on, dear, he said. I'll walk you to the bank. He wasn't wearing his usual coat. He'd left it in the car. Instead, he was wearing an old brown overcoat that had belonged to him when he was a younger man. He also wore a brimmed hat, which he pulled down low to conceal his face. Sherman walked behind her, 
speaking to her only when there was no one in hearing range. "'Why do they need my help?' she asked. "'I'm not feeling well.' "'It's okay, dear. They only need you to balance an account. You'll be home again soon.' Luck was with him as they approached the Don Mills overpass. There was only a small handful of cars on Don Mills and no other pedestrians yet. The winter sun was habitually late to rise, and in the semi-darkness under the streetlights he knew that even if he was seen, no one would recognize him. Not wanting to miss the opportunity, he acted as soon as they were on the bridge. Sweetheart, he said, grabbing her from behind, go to hell. And now, he thought, savoring the last sip of whiskey, all that remained was to wait out the funeral and cash in on the insurance policy and hope to hell that dolt Sheila Matheson didn't suspect anything. "'What's our next step?' Jeremy asked after Robert McQuaid and Sheila Matheson had left the division. "'These are just stories,' Mallory said. "'Without evidence, they don't mean anything.' "'The standard autopsy procedure falls short of giving us what we'd need.' "'My money's on cremation,' Mallory said. I'm betting he'll wait till the body's released and then make the arrangements quietly. Yeah, Jeremy said. He wouldn't rush it. Rushing might tip us off. Arsenic shows up in the ash after cremation. I don't think it's arsenic. At those levels, a blood count high enough to cause flat-out dementia, I doubt whether she would have been able to walk. You're right, Mallory said. But if not poison, then what? Let's call Samden at the coroner's office, put a bug in his ear, ask him to run every test he can think of for any substance known to cause profound dementia and memory loss. Good idea, Mallory said. And, while you're talking to him, be sure to wish him a happy freaking Valentine's Day. And that has been The Fourteenth of Forever by Donna Carrick. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. And now, please give a big dead-to-rights welcome to deadly friend and romance author Miriam Kobras from Hamburg, Germany. Good morning, Miriam. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Thank you. Good. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Well, thank you so much. It's cold here. It's snowy um, and dark and not nice at all. But the heating is on, and I'm happy to talk to you. And just for our listeners, let me tell them that you are in Hamburg, Germany, aren't you? Right. Yes, and it's Miriam Cobras, author of The Distant Shore and the entire uh, John and Naomi trilogy. And the prequels, five books. And the prequels, yes, exactly, exactly. I wanted to have you on the show today because I read The Distant Shore and it was a beautiful book. Um, well, I know that you. your genre is considered romance, but it's really a lot more. And I found your character development to be really, really nice. The stories themselves were very human. And uh, so Thank I wanted you. to have you on the show to talk about your genre and how you approach it. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, one thing is, I'm really interested in geography and how geography affects right. our work. You've lived in a few different places, Frankfurt, yes. Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Hamburg. You've also spent some time in my city of Toronto, which um, which I was thrilled to find on, on your website. 
<laughs> now, can you tell us how your travels have informed your fiction? Yes. Um, I think, in fact, traveling broadens your view of the world, first of all. And I think the fact that I traveled a lot and still love to travel uh, has made my characters eventually travel too. I've tried to write about places that I've visited, that I've actually been to, so um, I think you, it's easier if you know the smells and the sounds and uh, the sights and the light of a place. Uh, that's why I pick places that I've been to. Uh, the Norwegian seaside town, for instance, where John goes to meet Naomi in the beginning of Distant Shore, is based on a real place in Norway called Florø. Um, it's on the west coast, about 300 kilometers north of Bergen. And when a friend and I did a tour, a car, a car trip, a road trip around Norway, that's one of the places we stopped. And I got out of the car. It was a rainy late afternoon. It was we traveled in April, which is really cold still in Norway, as you may imagine. And I got out of the car of the, on the parking lot of that hotel that uh, the seaside hotel in Distant Shore is based on, actually. And I knew this is it. This is this will be always one of my favorite places in the world. It was naturally beautiful, but it had it had a the light and the seagulls over the rough waters a of feel, the bay. A feel. It had a feel, didn't it? And, and yes, uh, it had a brilliant feel. And so that ended up in the book. Uh, and of course, New York City keeps cropping up in the books. And I just love New York City. I mean, I could spend an entire day standing on any corner of any street and just watch people at life go by. It's so amazing, so thrilling, so vibrant. New so York City is incredibly human, really, isn't it? It's just one of those places on earth that is so human and I know that there are a yeah. number of them but that one's right up there it's yeah and of course Kleinberg outside Toronto which you probably know very I well I know Kleinberg very well our aunt lived there for most of <laughs> her life so I've set part of the books in Kleinberg I've been there a number of times I love the McMichael Canadian collection which is absolutely from any perspective a brilliant place the way it is built the art that's displayed I just love it so that's where I settled Naomi's family in Kleinberg, outside of Kleinberg, on, the, on an estate. Okay, for so, people yeah. who don't know, Kleinberg, Ontario, is near Toronto. Um, it's a little bit north of Toronto, and it, it uh, is the home of the McMichael Gallery, which you yeah. must see if you are coming to Absolutely. Ontario. It is a stunning Absolutely. gallery. I love it. I do, too. And if you're in Kleinberg anyway, don't forget to book a table at the doctor's livery for lunch. The doctor's <laughs> inn, right? I think it's called yeah. the doctor's inn, right? I'm, I'm not sure. I think it I is. Think there might be there might be a, a portion of it that's called the doctor's livery. So go ahead and Google either for our listeners. Uh, the doctor's inn, I-N-N, or the doctor's livery in Kleinberg. You're going to find it if you, if you Google both yeah. of those. Yeah. Do book in advance, though. Yes, it's well really in advance. Yeah. <laughs> well in advance. We were at a, a wedding that was held there not that long ago. Oh, so, how cool. Yes, friends of ours. Um, so, yeah, places really do. And I'm glad that you mentioned smells as well as the light and the sound and the feel yes. and the, the, the climate. Because smells are something that throw people right into a scene, you know? Yes. 
Yeah. I agree. Yes. Yeah. What I wanted to say is just that uh, it's what I found unique about your, and maybe it's not unique. I don't read a lot of romance fiction, so maybe it's more common now. But in the past, when I did used to read an awful lot of it, I think yours is unique. And I think it kind of stands head and shoulders because of that layer of reality of having been there. You know, it's it's something that I really loved and I was able to attach. So. I really don't lose. I always, you know, step back a bit from the romance genre. I think it's, um, my novels aren't really romance. They're more um, family stories or... Family saga, would you say? Sorry? Would you say family saga? Maybe, yes. Because that was Um, the other genre I was kind of leaning towards as a descriptive, was family saga. Yeah. They encompass such a long period of time. And there are so many characters. And they don't really have a happy ending. None of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But the ending is nearly always open or at least room for interpretation. So uh, that is something that in my mind classifies a romance novel is that you have a clear, at some point, a clear, happy ending. Yes, and I don't want to, for our listeners, impugn romance authors and their work, because I will tell you that for years I read almost exclusively romance, so I don't have anything against the genre. It's just that I felt at some point that I'd read pretty much everything there was to read in the genre, and that's why I did finally stop reading it, um, really. It's not because of any lack of love for it, so please don't don't think I'm impugning the the genre at all. When you've read thousands of books on a subject, you do move to something else. You just do. Yes. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll confide in you in this. I don't read romance at all. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If I write for, uh, if I read for my entertainment, it's almost always science fiction. Oh, I love science fiction. I love science fiction. For me, it's almost always uh, mystery, um, true crime, sci-fi, or the other big one that I've gotten into lately is autobiographical. I I do love the autobiographies. Really? Yeah. That's something, yeah, that's an interesting, uh, there's a subject in there so many of them that are really brilliant. Yes, and I think um, it's what led me to want to do this podcast, to talk to people, to get, to capture right. something of the authors that I know, because, yes. you know, we don't all get to have a best-selling autobiography, but the work that you guys, you writers are doing, it deserves to be captured in some manner, and, and your lives yes. deserve to be profiled in some manner, you know? Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> your own history I want to say, is is quite varied from what I've seen. Now, I've never met you, Miriam. One day we are going to meet, no question. But I hope so. I've never met you, but I have seen online and researching you that um, you've been an English tutor, you've been a juvenile court judge, you've been an American rookie football team coach. Now, these three things, they tell me you've got a bit of a varied mind, and... um, your experiences are really diverse. I'm wondering whether that helps you with a wealth of trivia that, that you have at your fingertips. Well, first of all, you forgot musical and theater teacher. Musical? Oh, okay, because you know what? I missed that because I, one of my later questions is about music in your work. So, yes, yes, tell me about that, the musical and theater teacher. Well, um, that was a kind of a spur moment. My husband 
when he left the corporate world, uh, became a middle school teacher for physics and math at the school, which is basically next door to us. And uh, it was, you know, he was he had started working there. He was he'd been there for half a year or something. And we were driving downtown, and we had the radio on, and this uh, song from Joseph and this amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat came on. Any any dream will do, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the song, and I said, you know what I want to do? I would really love to teach a music class at your school. And he said, well, go for it. So the next day I went to the school and I asked to teach, uh, to talk to the head teacher and told her what I was planning to do. And she said, great, here's the key to the the auditorium, have fun. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, okay, now I have the key. And I went to the auditorium and it was dusty and dark and nobody had used it in years. There was an (laughs) empty stage, uh, the seating, of course, but nothing else, really nothing else. And I stood there and I thought, what did I do? Why did I do this? (laughs) And um, this is actually quite a story. And I and I thought, okay, now I have a I have an auditorium. I have no plan of what we are going to stage. I have no plan about how we are going to pass children. Uh, We have no lighting. We have no sound. We have no costumes. We have no um, stage equipment. Nothing. So what do you do? I said, well, the one play that we could actually do without anything is Chorus Line. I oh, wanted okay. Chorus Line. Yes. And, yes. And so I called, um, I don't know if, if it's the same in Canada as in the United States, ASCAP, uh, the organization that looks after writers and composers' rights. Mm-hmm. And called them and I said, I want to do chorus line with the school group. What do I need to do? And the guy on the other end of the phone laughed and said, you will never get the rights for that. It has never been given to anyone in Germany, <laughs> not even to a professional theater company. Forget about it. And I thought, you will see. And I called, uh, I had the, the CD from chorus line and it said Warner Brothers. And so I found out the number of Warner Brothers in Germany, and I called them and mm-hmm. said, I want to stage chorus line at a middle school near Hamburg. Oh, um, I don't think you can do it. I wait, a, wait a minute, I'll put you through to our law people. So she put me through to, to their law people, and I said, I want to stage a chorus line at a middle school here. And she said, um... What? And I thought, well, you know, I have this, I have this auditorium, and I have nothing. And I thought, Chorus Line would be a great play to 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 stage with if you have basically nothing. And she said, well, you know, I don't think you'll get the permission, but because you get, you have to get it from actually from the composer. The company can't give you the permission; only the composer himself. Mm-hmm. So she said, write me an email, tell me what you want to do, and I'll see what I can do. I did that, and then nothing happened. And summer break came, and I knew I had to start teaching this class right after summer break, six weeks later. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, you can go to hell. I'm going to write my own play. And I wrote my own play, which is basically a casting show mm-hmm. in itself. And I put in songs that I knew I could get along with, and I, the kids would be able to sing them, mm-hmm. and I would get the permission from ASCAP to use them. 
And when we had done all that, and when actually the rehearsals had started, I got a letter from Warner Brothers saying, congratulations, you have the permission to stage Chorus Line. You're the first in Germany to get that permission. And I said, well, you know what? I don't need it anymore. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's right. You <laughs> had your so, own play, exactly. Yes. It was a good success. I was happy with it, and yeah, well... And I think so, that was uh, the start. That was the start of your writing career, really, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. The uh, the tale of John and, and Naomi, it's a love story, but it's a, also an epic saga, and it goes back yes. and forth through time, in particular with the prequels. Um, I think that uh, readers of romance will discover that the style also goes beyond love story, and it explores what makes characters tick. And... Um, that what their ultimate union will be like, how it's inevitable, but it's troubled. Now, yeah. I'm just wondering, how comfortable were you with either hopping back and forth through time, or did you actually write the prequels first? I'm always interested in prequels, how they come to be. Uh, no, I actually started with Fist and Shore. Um, actually, really, just like that. I woke up one morning and, and thought, okay, so today you're going to start writing a novel. And I had this one scene of Distant Shore that kept always playing and playing in my mind. You've read the book, so I can tell you it's a scene where John gets to the hotel in Norway and he stands in the lobby and Naomi steps out of the elevator with that tray of dishes in her mm-hmm. hands and mm-hmm. she drops them when she sees them. And that was a scene that kept replaying in my head and I, I really wanted to write that. So I knew I had to sort of work up to it, get there, and then go on. I mean, she drops the dishes and then what? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how Distant Shore came into being. And I actually from there on wrote the trilogy. And then... and tell us all the titles in the trilogy. Sorry? Uh, uh, tell us the titles in the trilogy. The titles. It's The first one is The Distant Shore. The second is I'm Never Same Sun. And the third is Song of the Storm, which deals with this family, John and Naomi's family, um, living through 9-11, basically. Okay, okay. I hadn't read that one. That's that's a pretty dark topic, yeah. Yes. Um, just yeah. for anyone who doesn't know, John is a musician, and that's how the music works its way into the story. So yeah. you get these beautiful titles, uh, Under the Same Sun. The What was the last one again? The song? Song of the Storm. Song, song of, of the, the Storm, storm. yeah. Yeah, beautiful titles. Now, that leads me to what I was going to ask you about music. How does your life evolve around music, or how did it come to be in your work so, you know, so clearly? Um, I have a lot of music in my background. I used to sing in a chamber choir for almost 20 years. We sang the Verdi Requiem, the Christmas Oratorio, um, Brahms Requiem, Bach, a lot of Bach pieces like the Magnificat and uh, uh, Johannes' uh, Passion and all the really big classical pieces. And we actually got a, a, a singing education, singing lessons for free. So that is really embedded. In. My father was a great singer too. He had a great song. He used to walk through the house singing <laughs> opera arias. Oh, okay. and arias. And my grandfather was a member of a choir and he took me with him when they gave concerts. Oh. My older son, who is a doctor now, uh, had to make this tough choice between 
going to musical school, studying music, or become go to medical school and become a doctor. And it's a terrible <laughs> choice. I don't envy the young people. And I'll tell you, Miriam, our, our middle son, Ted, has uh, two years ago had to make a similar choice. He was accepted oh, yeah. into six different programs, every program very wow. unique. His top two choices were the music program at York and the architecture program at the University of Toronto. And the U of T architecture program is considered highly prestigious. And they had sent him an early acceptance letter that was just beautiful. They said that he had distinguished himself throughout high school, and they would love to have him in their program. And we agonized as a family. And literally, he did not answer until the day before the deadline, and he chose music. So that's his career path. Yeah, and it was a it was a yeah. real agony because to know that he could have gone into the architecture yeah. program and and um, I'm sure he would have excelled, but every time he got nervous trying to wonder what to do, he went and got his guitar. Yeah, well, that's that's a clear path then. That that was telling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what what made your son finally decide on on medicine? Okay, uh, actually, the the decision was made for him. Uh, because he didn't have enough, uh, you, you have to have proficiency in piano playing and singing. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's the basic. But then you need a second instrument that you are really good at. It's really tough to get into musical school, and he would have had to learn a second instrument just to get in. Yes. And he always wanted to be a doctor. I mean, he, since he was a, a, a kindergarten kid, he wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he breezed through medical school, and he's now he's thirty six, and he's a an internist. He's specialist in anesthetics, and he is a an emergency. He has a license for emergency doctor and something else, which I forgot. That is story. wonderful. That's a terrific story. What's his name, Marion? Mario. Mario, yes. I've seen you post about Mario online. I know that you're very yes. proud of him. Yeah, but that is terrific. And so. Yes. Uh, in that case, I, I, well, I told Mario, the music will always be with you. Yes. You can always do the music besides being a doctor, but the other way around won't work. Exactly. And we told Ted the same thing, too, that, you know, the music can always be with you at some part, part in your life. I just yeah, wanted to understand the music because in our house we have a lot of music, so I love I seeing it in your work, you know? Yeah, I know. You're, yeah, you're, I love your family. You're such a tight-knit family, just like we are. Yes. You do a lot with your kids, yeah. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they're great puppy. kids, and I love seeing your posts about your family, too. I know that it's really important to you. In fact, that's on my list of questions, to, to talk a little bit about your rich family life. And uh, you've got two sons, a uh, husband, uh, two kitties. And uh, so what's next for your writing career and your personal life? We have two grandsons, too, two babies, two grandsons. Congratulations. I think I may have known that, yes. How old are they? Uh, The older one is going to be two in May, and the little one was born on November 7th. Wow. So they are 18 months apart, and my daughter-in-law wanted them close together, and I just said, you know, you are a batshit crazy. (laughs) Do you use that expression in Germany? You use that expression? Both of them are sick. (laughs) Anyway, they they are very happy to just bought a new house and have the two babies, and they are adorable, of course. I was never ready. I had no idea how I would feel holding my first grandbaby. Wow. Donna, it's the most incredible, most amazing 
flood of love that you feel. I was so not ready for that. I was, wow. just, I was yeah, you, you, you feel that someday. And, you oh, know, yes, I'm, sh- I'm sure of it. With I the three kids, it, I'm sure of it. it. Amazing! It's. It, it, I felt so complete in that moment. I felt like, okay, now I know why I've lived. Now yes. I can die in peace. I know why I was on this earth and this this baby. It was mm-hmm. a really an, a, an astonishing moment in my life. Yes, that something is incredible. I was totally not prepared for. So yes, and my our younger son, our son that's thirteen years apart. We took a really long time to get pregnant again. Uh-huh. Um, is a um, he's a computer science student. Mm-hmm. He's working on his BA right now. Uh, he's engaged to a lovely law student mm-hmm. and uh, girl. She lives not very far from here, so they are. We, we got lucky. Both our daughters in law are local girls with strong family ties, so they have no urge to move away. Or that's excellent. Um, I'm glad to yeah, hear that's that. That's really great. That's a great bonus because we'll always have our family around us. Yes, yes, and, and it's it's just so. Yeah. Oh, uh, we have one kitty at the moment. The next one, uh, my my cat, my little editor, the pig, died last year. No, two years ago, we had cancer and we had to put him to sleep. And I'm getting a new cat on the 27th. She's going to be flown in from Spain. Oh, um, wow. I have friends in Spain who have to give up their cat because they are moving for job reasons. And so they asked me if they brought her here, if I were willing to take her in. I just posted a, a photo of her on Facebook today. Her name is Miel. Like I will honey. look for it. I will look for it. Yes. That, so she's going to be a well-traveled kitty. <laughs> <laughs> um, Writing-wise, I've um, sort of finished with the stones. I think five books are quite enough. Actually, there are six books, but the sixth was... Um, exclusively published through my newsletter. And that's where I will keep publishing exclusive content. So if people want to read more of my stuff that is out in print or out published, they should, you know, sign up for my newsletter. How can can listeners do that? It will never be published anywhere else. How can listeners sign up for your newsletter? Um, To my Facebook page. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you can. There is a sign-up thingy on the Facebook page for the newsletter. Okay, okay. And your Facebook page is Mariam Cobras, and that is right. M-A-R-I-A-M and K-O-B-R-A-S for listeners. Exactly. Yes. yes. Great. Um, as for my writing career, I've actually started a new series. It's called Sunset Bay. Sunset Bay. And it is Sunset Bay. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the place where it takes part, and it's uh, set on Vancouver Island. Okay, and I had seen that you'd taken a couple of trips to Vancouver, so is that related? Yes. Yes. Okay, okay. Vancouver Island, it's a fictitious little place set on the wild western coast. Um, They do travel to to Tofino sometimes for shopping, but basically it's a little village on the coast, um, and it's the basic storyline is that a young woman from New Jersey gets a letter from a lawyer telling her that she inherited a cabin and some land and some money from her aunt who lived in Sunset Bay and has recently died and she left everything to her niece. Since she's not leading a very happy life in New York City, 
um, she decides to throw everything she owns into her old van and drives all the way to Vancouver Island. That's quite a drive. <laughs> That's quite a drive, yes. Yeah. And uh, arrives on the ferry from Sabasan Station. She, she goes across the, the water to Nanaimo and that drives across Vancouver Island and arrives in Sunset Bay late at night and oh, lovely. Uh, has no money to her name and the people in the diner where she stumbles in look at her and recognize her for who she is and feed her and put her up and then the next day the lawyer comes and tells her that um, well she has this she inhabited this cabin and the land surrounding it and quite a lot of money and everything that's in the cabin but uh, the stipulation is that she actually has to live in Sunset Bay to inherit everything that was left of her. Okay, so she has to establish herself in Sunset Bay. And uh, that's in British Columbia, for people who may not know, because I'm hoping that we have international listeners. Um, and Nanaimo is a beautiful place. It's, so yes. this fictional place will be set near Nanaimo, is that right? No, near Tofino, on the other, on the other side of the island. Okay, 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 Tofino. Yeah. Okay, now I wanted to ask you a little bit about your publisher because uh, I know I've seen you correspond online openly with Mary Chris Bradley many times and she just seems yeah. like such a wonderful lady. So I'm hoping that you can tell our listeners a little bit of something about her. Well, I just said I met her on Twitter. <laughs> that was in, in 2011. I was still happily bumbling along with this shore. I started writing it, and by the time we actually met on Twitter, I had written 400,000 words oh, okay. on Distant Shore, which is, of course, way beyond anything a novel should be. Yes. She found me, actually. One morning, I opened my Twitter, and there was a publisher following me, and I was like, holy crap, a yeah. publisher is following me? What have I done? Uh-huh. And we started chatting, and we actually, we didn't talk about writing or publishing at all. We just, we talked about her new puppy and about coffee and all kinds of daily trivial stuff. And then one day, you know, we we kept offering, would you like a cup of coffee? Yes, please. Would you like a muffin in exchange? Oh, yes, please. You know, this virtual Twitter. Yes, yes. And that's what I'd seen in the early days when you and I first met. When I first started following your Twitter feed, I was seeing this (laughs) correspondence. And that's why it really intrigued me. Right. And one day, you know, I just I just asked, well, instead of a muffin, don't you like my novel? And she said, yes, please. (laughs) And I sent it off. And she offered a contract. And that was it. And when she sent me the copies of Distant Shore, before I'd even written Under the Same Sun and Song of the Storm, when I got my box of author's copies of Distant Shore, there were two contracts in the box for the next two books. Oh, excellent. So that's basically it. And we've become very good friends by now. And uh, I love her a lot. She is wonderful. And you've traveled to um, visit her and, and all, all these yes. things, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. I would never travel without visiting her. I love her very much. That's true. And uh, it's beautiful. Yes. It's a beautiful friendship. And uh, working with her, I trust her. I would trust her with my life, and I definitely trust. I definitely trust her with my books. So, 
So, uh, That's so nice to hear because I always hear, I hear a lot of authors, not, not all and not most, but a lot, complain about their publishing experience and their publishers. And that's why I wanted to ask you about this specifically because, you know, it's not all doom and gloom listeners in the writing world. There are good stories and there are good people who are trying to support the industry and uh, they're trying to support you as writers. If you can give them what they need, they will give you what you need, you know? So, yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, Miriam, is about tips for writers, because I, I've promised to do this in every episode. Now, this can be about any aspect of the writing world. Yeah. It doesn't have to be restricted to writing itself. So anything you've got that you can share with our listeners? The most important tip that I have is just do it. Don't yes. waste time on writing manuals or tips and tricks or listen to other people. Listen to your heart. Listen to the music in you. See the story you want to tell. And then close your eyes, put your fingers on the keyboard, and let the story flow. It'll take you where you need to be. Just trust in yourself. Don't, don't do Pinterest. Don't look for advice. Do what you need to do. That's the only way to find your own inner voice. That's what I firmly believe. And as from being since we talked about Twitter, on social media, on networking, be yourself. Be as authentic as you can to, as you can possibly be. Use your own name. Use a photo of yourself. Yes. Not a bunny or a Barbie doll or whatever. Be yourself. Present yes. yourself as a person, as you are. So, because people want to, these days, it's not only about the book. It's also about the author. People want to know the authors that are behind the books. So, they when sure you're do. on Twitter... Yeah. When you're on Facebook, sorry? Yeah, they absolutely do. When you're on Dead to Rights, when you're on any podcast or broadcast, any place you can yeah. present yourself to readers, present yourself yeah. as yourself. Alec and I used to give um, social media workshops to people, and people would always say, well, I don't want to put a picture of myself for this reason yeah, or for that awesome. reason. Well, you know, if you can't, if you can't uh, bear being yourself publicly, how are you going to be yourself privately in your work? Yeah. And how are you going to ever react if you do have the, break, the breakthrough and you do have to do reading tours, book reading tours, you'll be facing them live. It won't be even on Twitter or on Facebook. You'll have a room full of people looking at you. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that is both really good advice for our, our listeners who may be writing. The first thing Miriam said is, Delve into yourself when you write. Look to yourself for the stories. Look to your own heart and your own experiences for your stories. And then just do it. Sit down and do it. And the second thing is when you're out there in the world trying to get people to know you, make sure they're getting to know the real you. Right. Yeah. Yes. Thank, thank you very much, Miriam. It's been really wonderful talking to you and it having you on Dead to Thank you so much, Donna. I really enjoyed this. Well, I had you on my list right from the start as somebody that I really wanted to talk to, so I was thrilled when you agreed. Thank you. I want to thank our deadly friend, romance author Miriam Colbras, for joining us on the Dead to Rights podcast. If you're a published author and would like to talk with me about your experiences in the industry, please contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com. In the email subject, say schedule me for Dead to Rights, and I'll be happy to get in touch with you. You can find us at www.deadtorights.ca or at carrickpublishing.com, 
My own personal author website is www.donnacarrick.com. Or you can reach out to me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Dead to Rights Pod, or on Facebook at Dead to Rights. Hey, here's a sponsor for you. Are you in the greater Toronto area and in need of a physics tutor for yourself or one of your students? Look for Thomas Kaz on Facebook or Physics Man Education at physicsmaneducation.wixsite.com and uh, you can get some great tutoring help for your student. Our original Dead to Rights theme song, Eyes of Gold, is brought to you by composer and performer Ted Carrick. Thank you for joining us on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Whatever else may be going on in this mad old world of ours, we're always thrilled to spend time with our deadly friends. Free, yet it rots. Let it rot. 